If you have a Bible, you can open it to Matthew's Gospel. We'll look at chapter 21, verses 12 through 22. And the text is just there on the next page of the bulletin for you, if you need that. Uh, We've been going through Matthew's Gospel for really some time now. Um, We're getting into the final week of his earthly ministry, the final week uh, in Jerusalem that leads up to the cross and his resurrection. So Jesus, the true king of God's people, has come into the city with fanfare here for the last time, and now he enters Yahweh's temple, he enters his temple. Um, God has always had a purpose for his temple, which he had made known to his people uh, repeatedly and very clearly what the purpose of this temple was supposed to be. It was a place for his glorious presence in festival fellowship. A place for God to dwell in the midst of his people. It's a house of prayer for all peoples, according to Isaiah 6, which our Old Testament reading that Dash read from, uh, which we will refer to several times um, this morning. But when the Lord Jesus came into his temple, he didn't like what he found. It was supposed to be a house of prayer for all peoples. Uh, Wasn't that? And so he cleaned house. He shut the place down. And he had a grand reopening with himself properly at the center, a housewarming where he welcomed all peoples in his divine hospitality. So in this passage, what we're going to see is the Lord's judgment as he comes into his temple and also his restoration and renewal for for his purpose for the temple. That's uh, what we're going to talk about this morning. So let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, give us the help of your spirit as we consider the word of your son together now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. Well, the prophet Malachi spoke about this uh, some 400 years before it happened. He says uh, in Malachi chapter 3, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand 
when he appears. For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. So what's striking about Malachi's prophecy that we see fulfilled here in Jesus entering the temple is the sense of surprise. The people seek the Lord, right? They, they look to his coming with anticipation, with expectation. But when, uh, when he does suddenly come into his temple, who can endure it? Who can stand it? Right? So when the Lord Jesus came to his temple, uh, like a refiner's fire and like, like Fuller's soap, this very harsh soap, uh, he swept his temple clean and he made things new and he purified it in his judgment, which was not what they were expecting. Religious people thought they wanted to see him, but it was quite another thing when he actually arrived. Uh, and it's actually in his mercy that he comes in this way. It's in his mercy that he shocks us and jolts us alive and awake to himself. Jesus is not just being volatile here, right? He doesn't lose his temper when he's overturning the tables. He doesn't curse the fruitless fig tree because he's angry, right? Uh, Jesus comes in in judgment, but not just to punish or destroy. He he comes in judgment to truly establish the gracious, gracious will of God for the temple. The temple isn't what it should be. He comes to bring an end to it in judgment, but to make it new and restore it. So God's gracious presence with us really is intended to make us gracious. That's sort of one of the main themes of this passage. God's gracious presence with us is intended to make us gracious. And when that does not happen, when we are not gracious in response to who God is to us, then it shows that we don't truly know God, that we've been unaffected by his gracious presence, that we don't really have a relationship with him, a vital spiritual relationship. Jesus comes and he exposes that reality. That's his judgment. But ultimately, he comes to restore that reality, actually to to make it so that his gracious presence makes us gracious. To make us truly know him in a way that, you know, our relationship with him changes our lives. That's what we're talking about. So let's dive deeper into this word here. What is it exactly that Jesus is doing when he overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons? You know, is he just condemning religious commerce? Is he against things like, uh, you know, like if we set up a book table in the lobby and we sell books on the Christian life to help you in a relationship with God, would Jesus come and throw those tables upside down? It doesn't belong here, right? Uh, Probably not. That's not actually what's really happening here. It doesn't say anything about these money changers or these pigeon sellers being corrupt or dishonest uh, or anything like that. If, you know, in fact, the scriptures make provision for exactly these things. These, These things are talked about in the Holy Scriptures. God thinks these are helpful things. Right. So if you were traveling from far away to worship in the temple, one of these annual festivals, You know, you could bring cash instead of bringing animals all the way from your home, which you'd have to walk there, you know. Uh, You could exchange foreign currency for your temple donations. That was provided for in the Old Testament. The poor could buy little pigeons instead of more expensive livestock, right? Raising a bull or something. They They could just have a little pigeon, and that would count, God says. He makes provision. These are allowances made explicitly by God himself, the practical ways to enable everyone to participate in the festival to bring their offerings for worship for the temple ministry. So the problem wasn't the business, the problem was the location, right? So all this business was taking place in the temple, which means it was happening in one particular place. 
the only place in the temple that would have been accessible to all people, the only place where religious leaders would have set up a market like this, was in the court of the nations, the court of the Gentiles. So here's the basic layout of the temple in Jerusalem. You get kind of a a little mental picture of it. You know, this outer section is... It's called the Court of the Gentiles, the Court of the Nations. Inside that, you've got the Court of the Women. The women of Israel could go in there. And inside of that, you've got a section where the male circumcised Jews, if they're purified, they can go in there. And then inside that, you've got the Holy Place, which is where the Levitical purified priests without blemish could go. And then inside of that, the Holy of Holies, where the high priest once a year could go on the Day of Atonement. Right? So... The court of the Gentiles was this massive outdoor area, uh, roughly 300 um, yards by 500 yards, so really big, surrounded by pillars and porticos. And any non-Jews, any Gentiles who wanted to worship Yahweh, or to put it in the language, you know, Dash read from our Old Testament reading, any foreigners who joined themselves to Yahweh, Isaiah 56, They were only allowed to enter this court of the Gentiles, this outer section. There was a dividing wall that prevented them from going further in. Gentiles were kept separate from the people of Israel in this outer court. This was where the money changers and the pigeon sellers had um, set up shop, in the only place that foreigners were allowed to go. So the closest they could get to God was this high-traffic bazaar. Right. It would have been especially crazy during a festival week like this when, you know, the ancient historian uh, Josephus estimated that over 250,000 animals were being brought through this, this space for sacrifice during this one week. And that the, the size of Jerusalem, the population would have swelled to maybe even two million people. Everybody cramming and going, going through that section this week. So imagine being a foreigner already feeling out of place in a strange land. Maybe not speaking the language, uh, probably not knowing the customs and the rituals. If you could even squeeze into the court of the Gentiles, well, let's just say it wouldn't have been an atmosphere conducive to prayer, right? Uh, Try praying in this press of bodies and over the din of shouting and animal noises and all the business happening. Nobody greets you. Nobody welcomes you. Nobody takes the time to help you to worship. Everybody's too focused on their own business transactions. So you'd probably feel excluded. Overwhelmed, confused, lost. And that is Jesus' problem with what's going on here. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. You make it a den of robbers. So, Jesus quoting from Isaiah 56, where we find that Yahweh is greatly concerned to welcome foreigners. To gather those who have been outsiders, outcasts, right? And receive them with divine hospitality so that they really belong with his people in worship, in communion with him. Isaiah 56, Yahweh says that he will bring these foreigners to his holy mountain and make them joyful in his house of prayer because it will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So when Solomon had first built the temple in Jerusalem, he prayed to Yahweh. You can find this in 1 Kings chapter 8. 
He's praying, Solomon, the king who built the temple, is praying to God, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes, this foreigner, and prays toward this house here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel. And that they may know that this house that I've built is called by your name. So the temple is for the foreigner. It's for the outsider to come to know Yahweh in prayer. So the temple was always meant to be a place where all kinds of people could come for communion with God, for festival fellowship, to dwell in his glorious presence together. To belong there. And, you know, God was making room for others in his divine hospitality, and he was requiring that same divine hospitality from his people, but the people of Israel made no room for others. They had become more and more interested in their own nationalistic identity over and against the other nations, Uh, more and more interested in that than in the revealed purpose and will and mission of God. So the grace of God to them had not made them gracious to others. They made a show of religion, but it was a facade. It was heartless. It was hypocritical. Jesus says that many times in the gospel. They had corrupted the Lord's purpose for his temple. So the Lord said they'd made it a den of robbers, which is a quotation from Jeremiah 7. And and shortly after Jeremiah says that, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 8, God goes on to say, When I would gather them, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. So, so God is looking for his people to bear good fruit, but he finds no fruit. For them to bear good fruit would mean they're gracious and they're warm and welcoming and inviting and, and helping others to come into a real knowledge of God. But he finds no fruit, and so he curses them and says he will overthrow them. So maybe you can start to see how the overturning of the tables and the cursing of the fruitless fig tree are tied together, right? So the religious leaders of Israel, they'd set things up to favor themselves, to give themselves and the people of Israel the privilege while ignoring and belittling and ultimately despising the outsiders, the foreigners. So Jesus was condemning their religion as a fraud, especially their misrepresentation of of Yahweh's hospitality in his own house. He brought the whole temple to a screeching halt. No more buying, no more selling, no more moving sacrificial animals through here. Because as Hosea says, uh, God says through Hosea, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So Jesus closed the temple for business and he reopened it as the house of prayer it had always meant to be. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. You go to the temple to go to God. They came to Jesus. And he healed them. And the children were crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. So the Lord had suddenly come to his temple like a refiner's fire. This was the true purpose of all the religious feasts of Israel. Festival fellowship with the Lord. His glorious presence with his people. With all kinds of people. The foreigners, the poor, the children. Even those who are blind and lame who would have been prevented, forbidden from proceeding any further. So again, going back to Isaiah 56, God welcomes the eunuchs 
in his house. The eunuchs, those who have physical deformities or self-inflicted, these, these blemishes, right? They are lame. And they would have been cut off from the worship of his people and not welcome. But here the blind and the lame, they've been explicitly forbidden by God's own word from entering the inner courts of the temple and doing priestly service. You can find that in Leviticus 21. But here was the Lord himself welcoming them in his presence, healing them, purifying them, restoring them to the community of worship, renewing their ability to to be in communion with God and with his people. He came in judgment in order to bring restoration. These are wonderful things, it is said. Psalm 72, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. So the scriptures make it clear. God alone does wondrous things. Right? That's, that's almost like a technical term for the confounding works of God. So when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, save us, to the son of David, the chief priests and scribes were indignant, and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? They're starting to get the picture, right? Here's Jesus coming into God's temple like he owns the place, doing these wonderful things, confounding things. Who does he think he is? Well, Jesus helps them along and provides even more clarity on that. Jesus said to them, yeah, have you never read Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you've prepared praise. He's quoting from Psalm 8. Hey, hey, wait a minute. That's about children praising God. Who does he think he is? The Lord in his temple. The Lord in his house of prayer. Well, actually the Lord leaving. Leaving the old temple. So that the whole earth may be filled with his glory. And leaving them, he went out. He went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. So this chapter started out with Jesus at a village called Bethphage, which means house of unripe figs. And now he goes to Bethany, which means house of figs. Just interesting details. And now we get this strange little account of him cursing the fruitless fig tree. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, He became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. So here's the thing. Uh, If a fig tree is in leaf, i got to get this right because, you know, my wife has like eight fig trees. If a fig tree is in leaf, it means there should be some little, little tiny baby figs on it, at least. At at the very least, unripe figs, which are actually edible, even if they don't taste very good. They're They're not fully developed, right? But there should be some little fruit on there if there's leaves. Jesus was looking for fruit. Remember Jeremiah 8, God says, I looked for fruit. Jesus was looking for fruit, and he kept his eye out for signs of fruit. A fig tree in leaf would indicate fruit. He saw one from far away. Yeah, that looks promising, but on closer inspection, the tree was fruitless. It was false advertising. 
false advertising. The tree was only healthy in appearance, not in reality. The tree looked healthy from a distance, but not when you got right up close. So the whole fig tree thing really isn't about the fig tree. It's about the temple in Jerusalem, right? It's a picture of God's judgment on religious hypocrisy. The fruitlessness, the barrenness, the emptiness of such faith, religion, right? Religious hypocrisy. The, the religious hypocrite says, it's visibly obvious that I'm secure in my relationship with God. So visibly obvious that I've even convinced myself that I must be secure in my relationship with God. When in reality, the religious hypocrite has no communion with God. That's what Jesus comes to expose. There is There is no real prayer, does not live his life in relationship with God, does not love God's grace, or desire to see others come to know God's grace. The religious hypocrite lacks the vital spiritual connection to God that would bear fruit. God wants us to bear fruit because of our knowledge of him. He wants his relationship with us to actually make a difference in our lives. He wants his gracious presence to make us gracious. He wants his people to become welcoming of others, to become hospitable to those who are not us, somebody different. To become hospitable, to help others come to know God, to help others come to join us in worship and communion with God. He wants the whole earth to be filled with his glory so he makes an end of the old, corrupt, failed temple and its systems of religious hypocrisy in order to bring forth a new temple renewed according to God's purposes. So he curses the fruitless fig tree, and it withers at once. By his mere word, he curses the religious system that his people used to exalt themselves and to exclude others. He curses religious hypocrisy in order to restore true worship, true love, true hospitality. So he comes in judgment in order to bring restoration. It's because he's gracious that he really wants his grace to have an effect on us, to bear fruit, to make us gracious, to share the real glory of the gracious God with all kinds of people so that the knowledge of his glory would fill the earth. When the disciples saw what happened with the fig tree, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it'll happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. That's not talking about like name it and claim it theology. Um, uh, just as the fig tree really isn't about the fig tree, so the mountain and the sea aren't really about mountains and seas. Uh, Jesus and his disciples, they're outside of Jerusalem now. They're to the east where they have this great view of the city, especially right there in front of them, Mount Zion, the Temple Mount. They're looking at a mountain when he says these things. Jesus is saying that his disciples will join him in his temple work as they come to him in prayer. That's what he's talking about here. His temple work is a matter of judging the old. In order to bring restoration, the true temple according to God's purpose. Jesus has abandoned the old temple in Jerusalem. And he's established the true temple 
in himself, with himself as the center of our communion with God. He himself is the place where God's glory dwells with humanity in his own person because he is God and he is man united forever, never to be parted. So he himself is the place where God's glory dwells with humanity forever. And wherever we are with him, we are the true temple of God. So if we go to him, if we go to Jesus for festival fellowship with God, if we go to Jesus for the healing of our humanity in relationship with God, if we go to Jesus in prayer, if we bring everything in our lives into our relationship with him, if we intercede for the blessing of other people, in Jesus' name, that is the true house of prayer as God intended it. It doesn't have to be in that, that ancient temple in Jerusalem. It can happen anywhere. Jesus said the old temple in Jerusalem was finished because it was not a place where God's grace made his people gracious. That mountain would be cast into the sea in judgment that brings restoration. So in biblical prophetic imagery, that means you know, the, the temple mount. And everything it represents would be swallowed up by a sea of Gentiles when a Roman army came and completely destroyed the temple in A.D. 70. That's when it would become finally clear to everyone, but especially Jesus' disciples, it would become finally clear that the old temple was finished, that the church was to carry out the temple's purpose in the world wherever the church was. And in another sense, this renewed temple, the church, is the true holy mountain where God meets with people in this world. And that mountain would finally be cast into the sea of all the peoples for the fulfillment of the Lord's purpose for his house of prayer. Wherever the church goes with the gospel of Jesus Christ, wherever the church goes proclaiming communion with God in Christ and participating in communion with God in Christ, That is where the Lord's temple is properly called a house of prayer for all peoples. And this only happens where we actually gather around the Lord Jesus, where he actually is the center of his temple. He is the place where God's grace makes people gracious. So abiding in him is the vital spiritual connection with God that will bear fruit in us, being in him and being with him and among his people in the church is where God's grace makes us gracious toward others. The church finds our true festival fellowship with God and with each other in Jesus. Because of our relationship with Jesus, the church is now the only place where God's glory dwells in divine hospitality. The church is the Lord's house of prayer for all nations. The church is the place where God welcomes all kinds of people because Jesus has welcomed us, all of us who are here. We were foreigners. We were strangers. But Jesus has welcomed us. The church is where outsiders can come to know God because Jesus has made God known to us. We were outsiders. The church is where sinners are restored for worship and true communion with God because Jesus has restored everybody in here to worship and true communion with God through our relationship with him. So, you know, let's be honest. uh, Often the church does not reflect God's hospitality very well. We can easily be like, just like that old temple in Jerusalem, not really looking to help strangers or sinners connect with God in worship, more interested in a show of uh, religion. 
If you have been made to feel excluded by God's people, well, uh, you know, there's going to be a reckoning someday and the Lord will ultimately set things right. But you need to know that the Lord himself welcomes you. He welcomes you when nobody else would. You're included because of his grace. You're not separated from his people because of his grace. In spite of who you are, in spite of who we all are, the Lord welcomes us and includes us. Jesus will make you joyful in his house of prayer if you come to him. You belong in the Lord's house of prayer because of him, because of his grace, which is greater than your sin, and it's greater than the failure of his people to welcome you in his name. In Jesus Christ, God has gathered us together in his church as his temple, as the house of prayer for all peoples, to make us gracious as he is gracious, to make his glory truly known in all the earth. So let's participate in his temple project through our prayers and by extending his divine hospitality to all kinds of people. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, overthrow our hearts by your grace. Restore us to true worship and prayer in our relationship with you so that we bear the fruit of your grace in our lives. Help us to know that your judgment on our old ways is for the sake of restoring us to new ways, to true life in relationship with you. Help us to consider others, to truly welcome them in your name. We pray that you would build your temple here among us and through us. We pray in your name. Amen.